Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and hates hidden in the hills and hollows of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbitt. Hey folks, welcome to the first episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. I wanted to first thank everyone for the kind words and comments I received concerning just the simple, unscripted pilot episode I released earlier this month. I got a lot of really good feedback and it seems people are very excited about what I've got to say concerning Appalachian Folklore. So this inaugural episode is going to explore the foundation of what this podcast is by defining the term folklore. I want to take this time to help introduce listeners to the very broad and seemingly nebulous world of folklore and folklore research in hopes of reeling in that term from its not always accurate stereotypes and perhaps to introduce listeners to a world they may not know exists or if they do, to what extent it exists in our everyday lives. And at one point in my life, I certainly didn't know. I was kind of skimming the surface. I was all around it, but I didn't know exactly what the term folklore meant in its entirety. I'd obviously heard the word before, but I, like many people, thought it was just fairy tales and old wives' tales and urban legends. I grew up pulling out Greek mythology books from the elementary and junior high libraries, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe and American folk tales, things like Goosebumps as well, and scary stories to tell in the dark, things like that. And that progressed into undergraduate where I got a degree in literature and creative writing. So a lot of research and reading there. My senior graduate thesis was in bibliography and textual emendations. Essentially what that is, is you take a text and you look at all the existing variants of that text. You trace each change in the text and compare it with author's notes, letters that he or she writes to friends, family, editors, publishers, things like that. And the idea there is to get back to the truest form of the text as the author intended it, which may or may not actually ever exist, but it does give us as readers a better idea of a more whole formed text. Uh, it's also interesting to see how the author's ideas change, what gets clipped, what doesn't. I did a lot of work with Hemingway, and his editor took a lot out of uh, his text in terms of the vulgarity and swearing, things like that. And on book signings, he would go back and fill in, via marginalia, what it was he intended to be in that text. So all the swear words and all the nasty little manly bits that he would put in there, or wanted to put in there, he would go back and, and add to the book during book signings. So this love of history of texts carried into graduate school. Unfortunately, in graduate school, you are force-fed books and plays and theory constantly, and it really takes away a lot of the love of reading and a lot of the fondness I have for research. And someone I'm going to quote later, uh, Dr. Jenna Jorgensen, she, uh, in an episode of the Folklore Podcast, she had mentioned in that podcast how there's a slump in academia in the U.S. where the point of academia for young scholars is to essentially write a book to get tenure, 
then maybe you'll get some royalties, but the real prestige is within the department. So the department gets all the fanfare for you doing all this research, and then you get a promotion, you get tenure, and you keep getting promoted the more books you write. But the problem there is that you're having to write and research things that do interest you, but it takes away from the more niche subjects that you might find interesting for a smaller group of people. So you have this interest. It's not going to make the university a lot of money. Not a lot of people are going to read your book. So you can't really do all the fun little research projects you really want to do. And that's the unfortunate thing that I found true in my experience in graduate school. But that's where podcasts come along. So I'm combining all of my passion for writing and research and reading and finding the roots of fairy tales and their presence all over the world, their changes or variations in their via their migration. And with discovering what academic folklore is a little too late in my career, I might add, um, that's how I became obsessed with folklore research. So before this thunderstorm takes out my power and I lose all the work I've done here, I should probably get into what folklore is. It isn't just storytelling. It's certainly a huge facet, but it's not the only one. When asked what is folklore, people will often say things like Grimm Brothers or Old Wives Tales or sayings like Red in the Morning, Sailor's Warning, or Shepherd's Warning, depending on where you are. Maybe knocking on wood or throwing salt over one's shoulder. And they're not wrong, but folklore is so much more than that. Let's get into it then. What is folklore? Folklore, as a term, was coined as a, quote, fine Anglo-Saxon compound by William J. Toms in 1846. And if you want an in-depth history of that phrase and how the field of folklore research evolved, I highly recommend episode 15 of the Folklore podcast from February 15th, 2017, titled Folklore, More Than Just a Word where host Mark Norman interviews Dr. Paul Cowdell about the history of folklore research from, quote, antiquarians studying the common folk to what it is today. I don't want to go too in-depth in this episode about that episode because it very much is a historic play-by-play of the field, and I would just be repeating everything Dr. Cowdell says. So do please check out that episode. I'll include a link for it in the show notes. These antiquarians worked under the notion, and I'll quote Dr. Lynn McNeil from her book Folklore Rules, the idea that the folk were a limited segment of society, the poor, the illiterate, the uneducated. Scholars believe that folklore was the leftovers of an earlier age, leftovers that likely contained important remnants of a culture that the elite and educated classes were sadly yet inevitably leaving behind leftovers that needed to be rescued from imminent demise. And I want to put a pin in that, the leftovers that likely contained important remnants of a culture. That'll come back when we talk about the negative aspects of folklore here in a bit. Anyway, back to Mr. Toms. What we have here is a fine Anglo-Saxon compound. Folk and lore. Seems simple enough, right? Folk meaning people, as in, hey folks, welcome to the podcast. And lore, as in stories or tales. So, people's tales. Easy enough. But let's break down those two words even further. Yes, people's tales, or the tales of the people, are correct. 
but incredibly oversimplified and honestly too reductionist. Folk also implies culture, which implies group, and not just a single individual. Culture then becomes the important word here. What is culture? Ward Goodenow defined uh, culture, quoted again by Dr. McNeil in her book, as whatever it is one has to know or believe in order to act in a manner acceptable to its members. That could be a group of friends from school versus a group of friends from back home versus immediate family. Each one of these groups has a different culture and one is expected to and does behave differently within a cultural group despite being a member of all three. A story you tell with a group of friends at school would be told differently to your friends back home and most assuredly would change yet again when telling one's parents. In tandem with the explanation of folk, I use the folk medium of stories or storytelling here. Storytelling is a living, evolving, malleable entity, in my opinion, and will prove vital in explaining the second half of that wonderfully Anglo-Saxon compound, lore, because of its informality in relation to the subject of that phrase, the folk. To quote Dr. McNeil again, if we're talking about a story, it's easy to see that stories can occur in both folk and official ways. Our culture has not only folk tales and urban legends, but also comic books and mystery novels. The former are folklore, the latter are not. Similarly, we have not only folk songs, but pop songs and symphonies, too. Not only do we have folk customs, but we have laws and governmental regulations. The point here is this. In relation to our previous example, the story you tell your friends at school is by nature informal. That presence of informality is paramount because of the culture you're in, a group of friends. The same goes for the friends at home and your family. It's all very informal. There's no script anyone is following, no procedure. It's all off the cuff. And that story, as stated before, will change between groups and change from friend to friend or their friends to their friends to their family, so on and so forth. That variation in tradition, tradition meaning the passing on of story, practice, song, etc., is also incredibly important. Dr. McNeil writes, defining folklore is as much about understanding how it moves and understand, as understanding what it is. Folklore is a part of informal culture. It moves via word of mouth and observation rather than by formal or institutional means. What this means is that lore, the stuff that's being passed around, which could be stories, customs, beliefs, whatever, isn't limited to one single version. When a cultural expression is recreated anew, each time it gets shared, it varies a bit. And it's this variation that allows us to identify a particular cultural form as folklore. Variation is the marker that we look for when trying to identify the folk process. So what does Dr. McNeil mean here when she's talking about this informal transmission and variation of a particular topic? Once again, I'll use storytelling as an example because it's probably the most common understanding of folklore. So if you have a story or a joke that you tell amongst a certain group of friends, that is a very informal method of communication of a particular topic. This can go with 
canning vegetables to particular techniques for sewing quilts or recipes for bread, churning butter, maybe folk medicine or planting, harvesting things. It's It can vary. But the idea here is that it's an informal transmission of a topic, whereas a more formal transmission would be books and symphonies, as she said in, in the quote that I listed here. With books and pieces of music, that particular subject is going to stay the same no matter who receives it, who hears it, who reads it. Whereas a story one tells from friend to friend or friend to family, family to family, so on and so forth, will inevitably change the more it is transmitted. So as you can see, as simple as the word folklore may be, there's a lot wrapped up in it. We have informality, culture, variation, and tradition. The people, the lack of formality or officiality, the change and the movement or migration. In short, to borrow one last quote from Dr. McNeil, folklore is informal traditional culture. If I didn't explain that well enough, I highly suggest you buy Dr. McNeil's book, Folklore Rules. And even if I did explain it well, buy it anyway. The link will be in the show notes. It's a short, less than 100 page read, packed full of incredible information. You can also listen to her interview on the Folklore Podcast from February 21st, 2021, titled Bernie's Mittens. Again, the link for that will also be in the show notes. I heard another interesting way folklore was described by Johnny Dillon, one of the hosts of Blurney Belladish, or Folklore Fragments, if you don't speak Irish, a podcast from the University College Dublin's Folklore Archive. He had this to say about the topic from episode one, titled What is Folklore, from April 18th, 2017. Quote, It's a way of relating to the immediate environment, the natural environment around you. It oftentimes provides a symbolic meaning for people that these customs or supernatural beliefs or narratives and even material culture will often have the allegorical kind of lessons in them. And so I suppose what you see is the kind of artistry and wisdom of our forebears distilled over an enormously long period of time into these traditions and these customs that then show ways of living, for want of a better word, or reactions to the environment largely. That's both an urban and rural phenomenon. I want to touch on something he mentions here, a symbolic meaning for people. Remember that pin I put in earlier, leftovers, that likely contained important remnants of a culture? I'd like to pull that out and bring it back up and combine it with several other things, mainly the presence of folklore in more modern times. Again, Dr. Cowdell's interview on the Folklore Podcast previously mentioned will cover more than I can here, since it's an entire podcast episode in and of itself, but I do want to touch on a few specific things. In another episode of the Folklore Podcast, titled Folklore 101 from January 30th, 2022, episode number 107, Mr. Norman interviewed Dr. Jenna Jorgensen, previously mentioned, author of the book Folklore 101, another book I cannot recommend highly enough. It's like 340 some odd pages, but it's worth every drop of ink on the page. Unfortunately, I borrowed a copy of it many moons ago and gave it back to the owner. That owner moved, so I didn't have access to the book when I went down and wrote my did my research and wrote this. So I don't have any direct quotes from the book, 
but the podcast episode is full of wonderful information. Dr. Jorgensen speaks of the triviality barrier in folklore and fairy tales, these subjects that seem unimportant or not worthy of study, as a couple of graduate professors had told me, because they're seen as, quote, girly in a largely misogynistic America. Those are her words. And I agree to an extent. A lot of fairy tales do come from the salons, from Charles Perrault and Lady Wilde, from Madame Dolnoy and the Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen collected many of their tales from women. So yes, they can be viewed as more feminine for better or for worse, but I would also say that there's an element of childishness there too, of the simplicity of youth or the whimsy of a child. That meaning to most people is what puts a, I don't want to say negative light, but maybe a less serious tone on the study of folklore, that it is less serious because it is seen as parlor stories or childish morality tales, things of that sort. Folklore or fairy tales isn't taken seriously because of that. But that wasn't always the case. That symbolic meaning also gave people a sense of national pride. In fact, that's what the Grimm's were doing by collecting those tales. To take what the Pentamarone and Perl's fairy tale collection had done and make the tales decidedly German. Whether this was a direct response to the works, I don't rightly remember. I'd imagine so. I do remember reading it somewhere that the Grimm's read Charles Perrault and Pentamarone and had also heard similar tales amongst their townsfolk and wanted to solidify these particular tales as being quintessentially German. I would suggest reading Jack Zipe's translation of the Grimm Tales. Uh, it's fantastic. The artwork is absolutely gorgeous. His uh, translations are fantastic. His work on Madame Dolnoy is wonderful as well. Natalie Frank's artwork in the book, uh, The Island of Happiness, is... Uh, there, there are no words. I would say get both of those and uh, spend a good long time basking in the beauty of those two books. But this idea of great cultural nationalism is present for better or for worse. Like this is our history. These are our stories. These quote leftovers that likely contained important remnants of a culture can be used to give certain cultures a sense of how wonderfully simple things were halcyon days and how we can learn to be that way again. It's seen time and time again. It can be ugly, but it is there. However, the use of folklore, at least the respect for that informal traditional culture, is often used as a response to those more aggressive uses of those leftovers. Industrialization and empire building being the abundant targets. Virgil, in his Eclogues and Pastorals, focuses on the inherent beauty in the simplicity of rural life and you move far into the future to the romantics, you see poets like Wordsworth wandering lonely, thinking about how disgusting industrialization of England and running its, how it's ruining the bucolic countryside. Wouldn't it be nice to save it, to be there? And that's exactly what, again, moving forward, Thoreau's Walden is exactly about. Now, these are just a few quick oversimplifications I'm throwing out here. I'm not going to go into Virgil, the romantics, transcendentalist, any of that kind of stuff. But suffice it to say, folklore has been used as an adversary to urbanization, as a return to the people. And those leftovers, they still hold symbolic meaning even today. If you've ever used a grandparent's recipe for bread while you were in lockdown, or how to ferment pickles while you were in lockdown, all of that 
has roots in folklore. That's all folklore. And to quote Dr. Jorgensen again, the Disneyfication of folklore is what makes folklore so relevant today with hashtags like Folklore Thursday. And I've seen so many more pop up. It just keeps going and going. It's like a new renaissance of folklore studies and research, which is why we see so many things from Eerie Essex to folklore food and fairy tales to saga thing. Tell me a story with Eddie Lenahan. Graveyard Coffee Talk is another fantastic folklore-based podcast. They do excellent research and tell you fairy tales and folklore and ghost stories from around the world and how everything is tied together while they're jacked on coffee. I highly recommend it as well. Myth, Legend, and Lore podcast, Roots of Lore podcast, Singing Bones. All of these podcasts are popping up because there is a new resurgence of, maybe not renaissance, but resurgence of folklore in our everyday lives because of things like Disney and the Marvel Universe, in part. And this has been Podcasts You Should Listen To with Aaron Bobbick. So I hope I've at least helped to show how folklore is more than just stories and superstitions. It is those things, but it is so much more. If you'd like to reach out to me about anything I discussed here today, if I was maybe talking out of my ass about some things, maybe I didn't do enough research into a certain topic, or you've got an article you think I might need to read, I would love to hear from you. All of my contact information will be in the outro. Do please reach out. Before I leave, I wanted to read some sections from Down Home Ways by Jerry Mac Johnson. Old Fangled Skills for Making Hundreds of Simple, Useful Things. This is the recipe he collected for homemade hairspray. Chop a whole lemon. Put the pieces in a saucepan and cover them with hot water. Boil the mixture until the liquid is reduced to one half. Let it cool, then squeeze the lemon and liquid through cheesecloth. If the resulting lemon solution is too thick, mix in a little water. Preserve the hairspray by adding lavender water or cologne. You may prefer to prepare a smaller amount at one time using half a lemon and to eliminate the need for a preservative by storing the grooming aid in the refrigerator. To use, lightly spray it on your hair from a pump valve bottle. And one more before I let you go, a recipe for cucumber milk. It's a lotion. Finely mince one cucumber. Cover it with one-third cup of boiling water in a saucepan. Put on the lid and simmer the contents for 30 minutes using minimal heat. Strain the mixture into a bowl and add tincture of benzoine in drops until the liquid takes on a milky appearance. Add one-third cup of boiling water. Put the lotion in a small jar. Close it securely and shake the contents to blend them thoroughly. Cucumber milk provides a cooling, soothing lotion for various skin conditions. One more time, I really do appreciate y'all's feedback. You guys have been very helpful, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about this inaugural episode. I'll see you guys soon. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to like, review, and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you use, I'd greatly appreciate it as it helps spread the word. And after all, isn't that what folklore is about? You can find the Appalachian Folklore Podcast on social media at App Folklore Pod. 
You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, stories, recipes, etc. at appfolklorepod at gmail.com. And you can visit my website, shows.acast.com slash AFP. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast cover art. The intro music is Stillness by Riviel. The outro music is I Can See the Sky by All Severed Lake. You can find all citations to the references mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.